Hello, and welcome to The Face of Bible John, a true crime podcast investigating a series of unsolved murders in the city of Glasgow, Scotland, from 1968 to 1969. I'm your host, Louise McGregor. Please note that this podcast will contain descriptions of physical and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. One technique used to learn more about serial killers is to create a profile of the person. This is often done by investigators searching for an unknown offender and it's an approach first developed by the Behavioural Science Unit of the FBI in the USA when investigating serial killers in the 1960s. Peter Klismet, a retired FBI agent and criminal profiler, has described the process like this. Criminal profiling is the art of developing a behavioural profile of an offender based on evidence from a crime scene and many other factors involved in an investigation of violent crime. We have some information on the crime scenes associated with Bible John, so it may be possible to build a deductive profile of a killer, a profile based on the evidence associated with specific crimes. This can be combined with an inductive profile, which uses statistical analysis of similar crimes and criminals. Profiles of serial killers use psychology, but they also use common sense to establish facts about the killer by analysing the evidence. This process won't tell us who the killer is, but it should tell us more about him. Let's see if we can establish a basic profile of Bible John by looking at the things that are generally considered to be known for sure about him. Firstly, he was from the Glasgow area. Some of the witnesses who had contact with Bible John commented that he appeared to have a Glasgow accent, though he spoke in a cultured or mannered fashion. None said that he had an accent from anywhere else. Where someone shares the same accent as a witness, this often won't be noticeable to the witness at hand. Where a person has a different regional accent, that will generally be immediately apparent, even if many people find it very difficult to accurately identify particular British regional accents. No witness who heard him speak suggested that Bible John had an unfamiliar accent. The Glaswegian accent is very distinctive and this strongly suggests that, as the police suspected, Bible John originated in the Glasgow area. Secondly, he worked in a white-collar job. The vocabulary, manner of speech and manners of Bible John were commented on by several witnesses who noted that he seemed refined and a cut above the ordinary, making him stand out from the majority of men at the Barrowland Ballroom. Jeannie Langford noticed that he had neatly trimmed fingernails and smooth hands, not the hands of a manual worker. He wore good quality clothes and had short, neatly trimmed hair. All these things suggest that he worked in a job where professional, neat appearance was important. Thirdly, he was used to people doing what he asked. The manager of the Barrowland Ballroom in 1969 was not a person with whom many people argued. Scar-faced, tough and very willing to personally eject those he didn't like the look of, he was a slightly menacing presence. Yet, when Bible John remonstrated with him about the faulty cigarette machine, he meekly agreed to refund the cash the following day. Jeannie Langford described Bible John talking to him like a schoolteacher speaking to a young child. Bible John was, she surmised, a man who was used to people doing what he asked. This could suggest that he was a police officer, someone with a military background, or even, as she suggested, a teacher. It could also mean that he was someone from a religious group or assembly where he had some leadership role or even someone from senior management in a commercial company where he was used to subordinates accepting his instructions. Fourth, he used the Barrowland Ballroom to find victims. It appears that Bible John met all his victims at the Barrowland Ballroom. In the case of Mima MacDonald, it is possible that he met her in a bar beforehand and this may have been arranged in advance. In the case of Helen Puttock, he met her fortuitously at the ballroom. It's tempting to deduce from this that he regularly trolled the ballroom in search of victims, but this does not seem to have been the case. The witnesses who saw Bible John with Helen Puttock all said that they didn't recognise him, which suggests that he wasn't a regular there. 
It does not seem likely that he was a habitual attendee of the Barrowland, and, given the publicity following the murder of Helen Puttock, it does not seem likely that he returned there at all after the end of October 1969. These four elements of the profile certainly seem to be supported by the evidence. However, there are two other points about Bible John that are frequently noted but seem less certain. The first, that he had a detailed knowledge of several areas of Glasgow. This has been suggested, but the evidence is not entirely convincing. It's certainly true that both Patricia Docker and Mima MacDonald were murdered close to their homes and in areas that would not have been known to someone unfamiliar with the area. Patricia Docker's body was found in a secluded and inaccessible lane, and Mima MacDonald in a derelict house. These were ideal locations for murder, but it is possible that these locations weren't chosen by the killer. In these two cases, it seems at least possible that the two women took their new bow to these places for a quick kiss and cuddle away from prying eyes. In the case of Helen Puttock, anyone who was familiar with tenement housing would have realised that there were enclosed yards behind each one and that the murderer would not have needed advanced knowledge of the area to know this. The only evidence which seems to support the idea that Bible John had detailed local knowledge was his ability to find White Cart Water, the small river close to the scene of Patricia Docker's murder where he dumped some of her possessions. However, he may simply have taken these things away from the crime scene with the intention of getting rid of them as soon as possible and have come across the river by luck. The second, he was religious and or had a detailed knowledge of the Bible. This is part of what gave this killer his name, an alleged fascination with the Bible. However, it's worth bearing in mind that what we know of this aspect of his personality comes from one witness only and during a relatively short period of time. Jeannie Langford noted that the man that Helen had spent the evening with seemed to change after the confrontation over the faulty cigarette machine. As she, Helen, Castlemilk John and Bible John made their way towards the exit of the ballroom, she heard him say angrily, My father says that these places are dens of iniquity. It was the first time that she had heard him use any phrase that had any religious connotation. Afterwards, in the taxi, Jeannie asked him whether he supported Celtic or Rangers, two local football teams, to which he made the odd reply, I'm agnostic. When she asked him what he meant, he launched into a long quotation which she thought probably came from the Bible, possibly something about Moses and bulrushes, though she couldn't be certain. This was the only time that he quoted from the Bible. Jeannie said in a later interview, he came away with something, a reference to the Bible. I can't remember the exact words, but it was something from the Bible. That was the only time it was the papers that gave him that name. From Jeannie's account of these conversations, Bible John received his sobriquet. But it seems that he only once quoted from the Bible, and even then, Jeannie wasn't certain about this. Many accounts of this killer suggest that he quoted extensively and often from the Bible, but a detailed reading of testimony indicates that this isn't true. Can we assume from this one quote that he was interested in, or perhaps even obsessed by religion and the Bible? It's a long stretch, and even Joe Beatty, the detective in charge of the case, wondered just how great this man's knowledge really was. In an interview after his retirement, he said, I do not think he is a very religious man, but just has a normal, intelligent, working knowledge of the Bible which he likes to air. We should be cautious about including knowledge of religion in the Bible as a factor in the profile of this killer. It's a possibility, but without more corroborating information, it's not proven. In addition to these points, there are also other things that we can deduce about the killer from the crime scenes and the injuries to his victims. For example, there was no attempt to hide or cover any of the bodies, which generally implies that the killer did not feel ashamed of his actions, which may mean that he felt the women he killed deserved what happened to them. All three women were strangled with ligatures. Strangulation is often used in sexual murders, where the killer can prolong the suffering of the victim in order to achieve sexual satisfaction. The ligature used in the case of Patricia Docker was not found, but was described as being a belt or something similar.
Patricia was not wearing a belt when she left home, and it seems more likely that what was used was the strap of her handbag. The handbag was then taken from the scene and dumped in a nearby river, removing any possible fingerprint evidence. All Patricia's clothing was also removed from the scene, either because the killer wanted to ensure that there was no possibility of police acquiring fibre, hair or bloodstain evidence, or because he wanted to keep them as souvenirs, or a combination of both. This is known as controlling the crime scene, and suggests that the killer had knowledge of police procedure. This could imply that he himself was a police officer, or it may indicate that he had offended before. Another point to note is that all three murdered women were menstruating at the time they were killed. In the murders of Patricia Docker and Mima MacDonald, the women's sanitary pads were placed close to their bodies. In the case of the murder of Helen Puttock, her sanitary pad was placed under her arm. This placement of sanitary pads does not appear to be accidental and suggests that the fact the women were menstruating was significant to the killer. Perhaps he had expected to have sex with the three women after spending the evening with them at the ballroom, and when they tried to refuse because they were menstruating, he was overcome with rage. This isn't completely unknown. One forensic psychologist has noted, in some men who are sexually immature or have been rejected by women in the past, the menstrual period can trigger deep-seated feelings of disgust. All three women were badly beaten about the face and head. In the case of Mima MacDonald and Helen Puttock, these injuries were so severe that both women were left unrecognisable. According to documentation from the FBI, these type of injuries are not only a manifestation of deep-seated and often long-standing anger by the offender against the victim, but also an attempt to depersonalise him or her. The facial battery indicates an attempt to strip the victim of actual identity. It is possible that Bible John's anger and disgust were triggered when he realised that the women he had accompanied home were menstruating and they refused to have sex with him. It is also possible that the anger felt by the killer may have been because he believed that his victims were adulterous women who deserved to die. Both Patricia Docker and Helen Puttock were married and Mima MacDonald had three children, though she wasn't married at the time of her death. Taking these points together suggests that Bible John was a sexual sadist who vented a great deal of anger towards his victims and did not feel ashamed of his actions. He also appears to have had some knowledge of police procedure. From this we can deduce that the killer was organised, as defined by the FBI system classification. The definition of an organised serial killer includes Antisocial, often psychopathic, but no right from wrong, are not insane and show no remorse. They have some degree of social grace, may even be charming, and often talk and seduce their victims into being captured. Organised killers are very difficult to apprehend because they go to inordinate lengths to cover their tracks and often are forensically savvy, meaning they're familiar with police investigation methods. Statistically, organised serial killers are most likely to be of above-average intelligence, physically attractive, married or living with a domestic partner, educated and employed. They are also emotionally cold and manipulative and often arrogant, being convinced that they are more intelligent and capable than anyone else around them. There are two further things that we need to consider in building this profile of Bible John as an organised serial killer. These are modus operandi, MO, and signature. The MO consists of the things the killer must do to commit their crimes, things like how they find victims, where they commit the murders, and how they kill. The signature consists of actions that are not intrinsic to the commission of the crime, but which serve the emotional or psychological needs of the killer. In the case of Bible John, the MO is almost entirely consistent. 
Victims were located and identified at the Barrowland Ballroom during an over-25 night, a location where, by repute, married women willing to have an affair were likely to be found. The killer spent time talking to his victims and gaining their trust, to the point that they agreed to allow him to accompany them on the trip back to their homes. The killer then went with the selected victim to an isolated or inaccessible location close to their homes. When they had been brought to this location, or persuaded to go there, the killer would attack, most likely by punching and kicking the victims in the head. When incapacitated and subdued by this initial attack, two of the victims were then sexually assaulted, though there was no evidence of this in the case of Patricia Docker. They were then strangled to death with a ligature. In the latter two cases, the ligature was the woman's own stockings. In the first murder, we do not know for sure what the ligature was, though, as noted, it seems possible that this was the strap of Patricia Docker's handbag. When the women were dead, there was no attempt to conceal their bodies. They were simply abandoned in the place they were killed, though in the case of Patricia Docker, her clothes were removed and taken from the scene. There are two main elements which make up the signatures in these cases. In each murder, a sanitary pad was taken from the victim and placed on or close to the body. This occurred in all three murders, which means it's unlikely to be accidental, and suggests that the sanitary pad itself, or the fact that the murdered woman was menstruating, was significant to the killer. In each murder, the victim's handbag was removed from the crime scene. In the case of Docker, this was recovered in a nearby river. In the other two cases, the victim's bags were never found. This could mean that these items were somehow significant to the killer, and that perhaps the latter two were kept as souvenirs, though it could also be that the killer recognised handbags as a possible source of fingerprint evidence, and simply wanted to remove these potential pieces of evidence. Finally, we need to think about the circumstances of each murder. Although it seems certain that this murderer belongs to the organised category of serial killers, it does not seem at all certain that he had set out intending to murder his victims. The control of crime scenes suggests strongly someone who was familiar with police procedure, yet he had allowed himself to be seen by a number of witnesses with his victims. In the case of Helen Puttock in particular, he had been seen for an extended period by Jeannie Langford and Castle Milk John, and had even drawn attention to himself in the incident involving the cigarette machine. These things make no sense at all if he was familiar with police investigative procedure and he had intended to kill Helen that night. He must have known that he had been seen with her, and that it was very likely that he would be recognised and found. Most organised killers are very careful not to be seen with their victims, if possible. It seems far more likely that something happened after he was alone with Helen to unexpectedly provoke his anger and cause him to explode in murderous rage. What does this all give us? Bible John was almost certainly a native of Glasgow, who most likely had a job that required a smart appearance and gave him some level of authority. Statistically, he is likely to have been of above average intelligence, which also ties in with the position of authority, to have been married or in a long-term relationship, and to have been employed. He was also most probably a sexual sadist and an organised serial killer, though these things may not have been apparent even to the people who knew him well. There is no good evidence that he was deeply religious or very familiar with the Bible. These things emerge from media reporting and have since been absorbed into the legend of Bible John. This profile is helpful in understanding more about the personality and psychology of this murderer, but it is only truly useful if we have a suspect with which to compare the profile. However, in the search for this killer, surely the most significant thing is that we know precisely what Bible John looked like. Don't we? It's tempting to think of the human memory as a machine for recording and playing back memories, but that's simply not how it works. Instead, we unconsciously edit our memories, sometimes long after the fact. For example, it's not uncommon for several people to have quite different recollections of the same event. Each may be convinced that they are remembering what happened correctly, and each would pass a lie detector test without difficulty, but obviously the different versions can all be the objective truth.
The unreliability of memory is a particular problem when it comes to investigating crime. Eyewitness testimony is especially troublesome. A review of wrongful convictions in America in 1988 found that more than 50% were due to mistaken eyewitness identification, and those were just the cases which had been overturned in court. There is no way of assessing how often mistaken eyewitness identification may have been a factor in convictions which have not yet been overturned. Part of the problem in this is the way that our brains store information about faces. Research suggests that this is done holistically, in other words, most people remember a general impression of a face rather than remembering the individual elements of that face. In 2013, Graham Pike, professor of forensic cognition at the Open University, wrote an essay called Photofit Psychology. In this essay, he noted, Describing faces is difficult. Even describing the face of someone you know very well can be tricky. Try it if you don't believe me. I'm betting that you can describe their hair fairly well, but really struggle for most of their features. Describing the face of someone you are not familiar with so briefly and some time ago is extremely difficult indeed. Police technicians assembling a composite image, or an artist like George Lennox Patterson, require witnesses to describe each facial feature in isolation, something that we know most people aren't generally particularly good at. Where does all this leave us in terms of identifying Bible John? First, we need to consider the various descriptions of this killer. At the time of the murder of Patricia Docker, there were several witnesses who remembered seeing the nurse dancing with various partners at the Barrel and Ballroom, but these witnesses weren't interviewed until several days later because of the initial confusion about where Patricia had gone dancing that evening, and none of the descriptions were particularly detailed. No one remembered seeing her leave, though some of the witnesses thought that she might have danced with a tall, red-haired man. When Mima MacDonald was murdered, witnesses saw her drinking at Betty's bar and dancing at the ballroom with a tall, slim, red-haired and smartly dressed man. At least two of the witnesses described the man as very tall, six feet or more, aged 25 to 35, and wearing a dark blue suit with hand-stitched lapels and a white shirt with a dark tie. One man and one woman gave a detailed but still fairly general description of the man's facial features. One saw him in Betty's bar and the other sitting on a sofa in the Barrowland ballroom with Mima. It was these descriptions which were given to George Lennox Patterson who used them to create the first portrait of Bible John. Jeannie Langford was able to give police a much more detailed description of the man who had spent the evening with Helen Puttock. This was similar to the descriptions given by witnesses who had seen the man with Mama MacDonald, but it added new details such as the crooked teeth. When Jeannie Langford was taken to Marine Police Station in Partick for the first time to be interviewed by DS Joe Beatty, she saw the image created by Lennox Patterson on the wall of his office and immediately said, that's him. The painting had been released to the press on the 26th of August 1969 and featured in newspapers and posters and shown on television for two months before the murder of Helen Puttock. Jeannie Langford's description of her reaction to seeing the painting on Joe Beatty's wall strongly implies that she hadn't seen it before and that as soon as she saw it she recognised him as Helen's killer. She later spent time with George Lennox Patterson who refined the portrait according to her advice. This second version of the portrait was not significantly different to the first. Jeannie Langford then spent time with a Glasgow City Police photofit technician, producing a photofit of the face of Bible John, which also looks very similar to the portrait produced by Lennox Patterson. Let's just think about all this for a moment. This means that the initial portrait produced by George Lennox Patterson was so accurate that Jeannie Langford recognised it immediately as the man that she saw her sister with in the ballroom. The portrait was created when the police sent the artist descriptions from witnesses who had seen a man with Mina MacDonald, with no record of Lennox Patterson talking directly with these witnesses, so it appears he created the image purely based on the written descriptions provided by the police. In these circumstances, the chances of producing an image that was a close likeness must have been surpassingly small. Yet, when Jeannie saw this portrait in Marine Police Station, she immediately exclaimed, that's him. 
She later described how this image was so accurate that it gave her a wee kind of shiver or something. The implication is that Jeannie hadn't seen the picture of the killer of Mama MacDonald until the day she saw it in the Marine Police Station, but this is very hard to believe. The murder of Mama MacDonald had been widely publicised and the first painting of Bible John had been featured in newspapers and on television. A copy of the painting was even stuck prominently on a notice board at the Barrel and Ballroom on the night that Helen and Jeannie went there to dance. This was a police poster asking anyone who recognised the man to contact them about the murder of Mama MacDonald and it was displayed at a number of Glasgow dance venues. Before Helen and Jeannie went out that night, their mother Jean had even mentioned the murder of Mima and suggested that it might be safer if they stayed at home or went somewhere else to dance. For these reasons, it's difficult to accept that Jeannie Langford saw the painting of Bible John for the first time in the Marine Police Station, even though that's what her account implies. She simply must have seen it before then. Jeannie heard about the murder of her sister on the 31st of October, soon after George Puttock, but she was reportedly so distraught that it was only a few days later that she felt able to talk to police. Some accounts claim that it was anything up to two weeks later before police took a detailed statement from her, though this surely can't be true because Glasgow newspapers on the 4th of November were already discussing the killer's propensity for quoting the Bible, something that could only have come from Jeannie. In the period between hearing about her sister's death and talking to the police, it seems very unlikely that Jeannie hadn't at least considered the possibility that her sister had been killed by the same person who murdered Myra MacDonald. It also seems very likely that she had read newspaper reports about Helen's death, which suggested a link between the two murders and carried the original Lennox Patterson portrait of the killer. These things are important because they suggest at least the possibility that, in Jeannie Langford's memory, the face in the painting by George Lennox Patterson had become confused with, or had even overlaid, the face of the man she saw on the evening of Helen's death. In an article in Psychology Today in 2016 titled Revisiting the Places of Memory, psychologist Robert Encraft, PhD, notes that Another notable type of memory error is the conflating of images from different events at the same location. People and events from different times can be combined, like superimposed imagery. It's not uncommon for us to remember a particular person being present during a particular event, even when they weren't. Our minds are conflating the memory of a person with the memory of an event to produce an inaccurate composite recollection. There is at least a possibility that this is what happened in the case of Jeannie Langford's memory of the face of the man who killed her sister. It seems likely that, perhaps unconsciously, she was already aware of the painting of the face of the man who was the suspect in the Mama MacDonald case, and in her mind, this may have unwittingly partly overwritten the actual face of the man with whom she shared a taxi that night. This would certainly explain what is, for me, a very troubling aspect of this case, and that's the supposed accuracy of the first Lennox Patterson painting. Given how it was created by the reading of not particularly detailed witness descriptions, it just can't be an accurate image of the killer's face. Yet Jeannie Langford claimed that she immediately recognised the face and that it was exactly like the man she and her sister had spent the evening with. It is at least possible that's because she, like most people in Glasgow at the time, had already seen this painting and in her memory, this became the face of Bible John. This would also explain why other witnesses did not agree with Jeannie. The manager of the Barrel and Ballroom, for example, was emphatic that the painting did not in any way resemble the man with whom he had argued about the cigarette machine on the 30th of October. Joe Beatty decided to go with Jeannie Langford's memory and to push Lennox Patterson's painting as an accurate representation of the suspect, but other detectives were very unhappy about this. One, Brian McLaughlin, even told the Scottish newspaper much later that he had spoken with both the manager and bouncers at the ballroom and they all agreed that the painting was wrong. They were emphatic, for example, that the man was of no more than average height and had much darker, possibly black hair. As far as most people are concerned, the Lennox Patterson painting has become the face of Bible John. The search for this killer has been predicated on this, and various suspects have been accepted or rejected largely on the basis of whether they look like the painting and photo of it. 
But what if this isn't the face of Bible John after all? You just listened to episode 5 of The Face of Bible John. Hosted, recorded and produced by Louise McGregor. Co-written by Louise McGregor and Steve McGregor. Based on the book The Face of Bible John, The Search for a Scottish Serial Killer by Steve McGregor. Thank you for listening.